0: Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today – as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com weeklytech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Michael Niebauer, who's a pastor and author of a new book entitled Virtuous Persuasion, A Theology of Christian Mission. Today, we talk about virtue ethics and the nature of Christian missions. Dr. Niebauer is the pastor of Incarnation Church in State College, Pennsylvania, and also serves as a teaching fellow for Trinity School of Ministry. He's also an ecclesial fellow in the Center for Pastor Theologians and hosts the Christian Catechesis podcast, This We Believe. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Michael, it's really good to have you here on the Digital Public Square podcast. As we get going, can you tell listeners a little bit about your story and what led you to focus your work on virtue ethics and missiology?
1: Sure. Well, I was raised a Roman Catholic and was involved in an evangelical ministry in high school, and as I went to college, I, I gravitated towards the Anglican tradition as what I thought was sort of the best of both worlds, sort of the, the liturgy and the sacraments and this focus on studying scripture, following Christ, sharing our faith with others. And shortly after I graduated college, I really just got started helping to start a number of different churches in the Chicago area. So one at my alma mater at Northwestern University, um, and then a few in Chicago, a few in Hispanic communities, and a few in nursing homes. And really, it was through these experiences, I, I found this set of kind of recurring issues uh, both in my ministry personally, but also within the the broader church planting world. And as I continued to minister and church plant, I pursued a master's degree at Wheaton College and just continued to pursue ministry full-time, moving on to get my PhD at Duquesne University. And I think that experience of of simultaneously doing mission and studying theology at the same time, it just led naturally for me to focus on missiology. I think a real breakthrough for me came, though, while doing coursework in virtue ethics at Duquesne, because it was really in that field of thought that I, I really discovered a lot of the resources to address some of those sort of nagging practical issues that have been bothering me as a pastor and church planter really for decades.
0: No, that's really fascinating. I I talked to you right before we jumped on the podcast. But when I saw this book, I was really intrigued by it. I'm not incredibly familiar with kind of missiology and the study of missions. I've taken a couple classes here and there. So I know some broad concepts. But as an ethicist you're wedding these two what very much are practical disciplines together and showing how they flow with one another and kind of fit with one another. Um, and so that's something I was really intrigued and was excited to have you on the podcast to talk a little bit about that, to kind of see how these two ideas kind of flow together. But as one who's not super familiar with a lot of the ideas of missiology and some of the context with missiology, some of the kind of major perspectives or even methodologies. I want to see if you could unpack that a little bit, kind of give us a broad contour of what is missiology and what are some of the major debates or kind of issues that we experience within the field of missiology.
1: Yeah, well I think historically missiology was was wedded to the field of anthropology. And still to this day, anthropology, intercultural studies, they're really the main vantage points through which people study mission. And I think that also has its roots in really thinking about mission as overseas missions. But there's also obviously been a number of texts that deal with the biblical theology of mission. But over the past 50 or 60 years, you've seen a movement to wed dogmatics with missions, um, it's where you get the, the term missio dei from, which is a, a pretty popular term. And then finally, you've got a, a cluster of approaches that center mission on interreligious dialogue and religious pluralism. And like I said, there really weren't any books out there that I knew of that grounded theology uh, theology of mission and ethics. And I thought that was important because I felt like ethics was that realm of of really dealing with the Practical day-to-day challenges of being a missionary in that vocation. Stephen Bevins, a missiologist, said he read my book and he said it was really—it's um, really a theology of the missionary as much as it's a theology of mission—and that's a, a little bit of what I was trying to get at in the book. Yeah, and that's something we've talked a lot about here on the
0: podcast is the nature of ethics and really the centrality of ethics in the Christian life. Uh, It it reminds me of some older figures like Hermann Bavink and Carl Henry and even going back to like German theologian Luthart who said theology is God speaking to us, revealing himself to us, and then the nature of ethics is our response to God. And so when you think about it in those kind of categories, these kind of two kind of interdependent disciplines and how they kind of function within the Christian life, it's really beautiful. And as you said, there's been a lot of work done on a theology of mission and kind of rooting that in theology. And that's one of the reasons I thought this was really intriguing is you're rooting it in ethics, uh, which is really the nature of Christian discipleship, really the nature of Christian mission. So when I saw that, I was like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. But in the same respect, as you said, there's not a lot of works that are doing that. So I know early on in the book you talk about uh, how missionaries are often beset with a host of tensions, especially that are moral in nature. What are some of the recurring issues that we find that are kind of prevalent within the field of missiology or even in the mission field itself?
1: Yeah, well, I address a number of different issues in the book, um, but I think some that would be of of real interest to some of your audience are really those issues that that confront pastors and really all Christians as as well as missionaries. Um, First, I I think there's this issue of numbers. How do I grow my church without being fixated on the numerical ups and downs of, of Sunday attendance figures? And, and I think most of the pastors I know, you know, if you, if you corner them, they would, they would admit that, you know, they feel better when attendance is up and they feel worse when attendance is down. And it's something that I wrestled with throughout my vocational life. You know, I want to do my job well. But I also don't want my well-being tethered to the numerical success of my missional activities. And the other major issue, which I think is really facing all Christians, is that issue of persuasion. So how do we persuade people of the good news of Jesus Christ without manipulating or coercing them? And I think there's this stigma attached to direct forms of persuasion that I think many Christians feel, and and it's really a barrier to them for, for sharing their faith with their friends. I know one of the things you do throughout the book is connect the idea of Christian mission
0: specifically to theological ethics. And one, recently we've had uh, Ross Hastings on the podcast talking a little bit about his book on theological ethics, but for listeners' sake, can you kind of help us understand what is theological ethics and how that's different than whether a secular ethic or a kind of general religious ethic? What is theological ethics in that sense?
1: Yeah, well, I think of ethics as the fulcrum point between theory and practice. And so I think theological ethics is that fulcrum point between theology and practice. So it's I think of it as helping us to integrate our theology with our day-to-day lives as Christians. Um, and, I, and I think for a lot of Christians and pastors and missionaries, there can be this, this disconnect between the two. So one learns a bunch of theology in seminary. And then once they get out into the mission field, they lean heavily on the practical books on church planting and leadership. And I, I think theological ethics is, is supposed to help ground our day-to-day actions in what we believe and fundamentally a, a belief in the, the death and resurrection of Christ.
0: Now, early on in the book, you kind of write about, and you've already referenced a little bit about the idea of kind of these three different ways of thinking about missions. You talk about mission as missio day or the mission of God. You talk about that mission as growth, and also mission as dialogue. So you've talked a little bit about that idea of mission as growth with kind of the numbers aspect. Can you help us to understand a little bit more of kind of that mission of God kind of aspect as well as that mission of dialogue aspect what is it about these approaches that are helpful and maybe some of the ways that they can have unintended consequences when we think about the nature of christian missions
1: well if we think of of mission as the missio dei or the mission of god it's helpful and it has been helpful for seeing mission as really being a focal point of theology that mission is not sort of this extra, purely practical endeavor, but it's something that we need to think well about. And the, the challenge is, though, is that it, it tends to view all mission as really being all activity that one performs that is in line with God's salvific movement in the world. So the problem here is that really every kind of activity can get put under the banner of mission. So mission can kind of just become the... The kind of exclamation mark that we use to emphasize a Christian activity that we do. And what happens is there's kind of this interminable debate over whether to prioritize evangelism or social works or public witness. And what I call for in the book is is really a more specific definition of mission as being these two activities, proclamation and gathering, uh, uh, evangelism and church planning, if you will. And the purpose of this is really to help provide better focus. The you know, the more we can define things, the more we can do them well. So, you know, an example I like to use is, you know, both soccer and baseball involve running, um, but we talk about them as different sports because it helps us to discern how to do them well. If, you know, if someone wanted to learn soccer and I just told them to run, I wouldn't really be helping them improve. Similarly, if someone you know wants to do mission and i just said go do christian activities uh, i'm not really helping them share the gospel well you know the biggest issues i think really come in when we look at that mission of growth model which which i've talked about a little bit already it's it's this focus on how do we do mission well but the goal really being to increase the number of converts or increase the the number of people attending churches and this one I think is probably the, the issues arise here that I see most in talking with other pastors, in that this fixation on numbers really causes a lot of pastors to focus on reaching people who are already Christian uh, or people with income. This is, you know, this is the the dirty little secret in the church planting world that you know, the fastest way to build a large and stable church. to just reach out to wealthier christians because christians are the ones looking for churches and wealthier people can pay the bills and so you know of course if you want to reach non-christians that usually takes more time you've got to build friendships you've got to be willing to accept rejection furthermore oftentimes reaching out to the poor are not going to build a stable church they're they're going to be perceived as a as a resource drain and so oftentimes I've found that the poor get neglected in these focuses on church growth. I saw this really clearly when I was starting churches in Chicago. It, it seemed like, you know, I, was, I, I started a, a church with kind of you know, recent college graduates, artists, writers moving into Chicago. And it was a really great church, but it, it seemed like every day there were new churches popping up trying to reach this demographic of people. And there was a, you know, there's kind of a fierce competition to attract people who were already Christians. And then I I went and and helped to start these churches and nursing homes and found that there were no people trying to reach this demographic of people. We were oftentimes the, the only Christian activity made available to the residents there. And I think that a lot of this is, I think, a byproduct of this fixation on church growth and numerical growth that pushes people to spend a lot of time and money and energy into reaching Christians, but it also oftentimes, I think, neglects oftentimes even the people who are truly lost. And then, you know, lastly, that that mission as dialogue approach, as I said above it, it's a view of mission that really wants to keep persuasion out of mission. Mission here just becomes, I think, the cultivation of interreligious friendship and dialogue. And this, the problem with this approach is that persuasion is not really something we can ever expunge. We are being persuaded all the time, whether we like it or not, whether it's from advertisements or opinions or social media posts. It's really just a matter of who and what is doing the persuading. I think the reality is, is that if we don't try to persuade people of Christ's resurrection, something else is going to occupy that persuasive space. Usually it's going to be filled with you know commercial or political forms of persuasion people who want our money or our vote you know while i think most evangelicals would would probably reject sort of the core principles of a mission as interreligious dialogue approach i do think it's really influential in that it it really has a lot to do with this uncomfortableness that the christians feel over having direct and, and persuasive conversations with those who aren't christian And I know one of the things as you kind of get
0: through kind of this idea of setting up kind of where we are and kind of helping us to orient ourselves to kind of not only the field of Christian missions, but also some of the ethical debates and some of the big ethical questions that uh, missionaries face you start to cast this idea of Christian mission in the framework of Aquinas' moral theology. And so recently we had Dr. Matthew Barrett on the podcast. We talked a little bit about Thomas Aquinas and uh, some Protestant love, but also some Protestants that don't love uh, so much of Thomas Aquinas. But you frame this idea of Christian mission in this Aquinas' moral theology. So I wanted to see if you can help orient us a little bit to Aquinas' framework for ethics and what distinguishes his framework from other popular frameworks, such as like deontology or consequentialism. What is unique about Thomas Aquinas' approach that's helpful when we're talking about Christian mission?
1: Well, I think that Aquinas' moral theology, first off, is profoundly Christ-centered and deeply grounded in scripture. And I think you're right. I think there's Protestants, I think, sometimes mischaracterize Aquinas as kind of just being an, an Aristotelian philosopher with, um, you know, some, some Christian paint splashed on to the top. Um, but I, I think it's really not the case. I think the core of his ethics, it centers around the principal goal of all human beings, which should be what he calls the beatific vision, seeing and partaking in the glory of God through Jesus Christ. And I think what's fascinating about Aquinas is that he thinks all deliberate activity that we do in our life, everything that we do and should think about as we're doing it, everything should be conducted with that end in mind, towards that end of pursuing Jesus Christ. And I think that for Aquinas, when when someone performs any activity in accordance with that final end of the beatific vision, they develop virtues, virtues we can think here of prudence or temperance. And those virtues then sort of become sedimented in the character of the individual. And that allows the individual to then perform other activities in a way that is also honoring and glorifying to God. I think it corrects, I think, for flaws in in consequentialism and deontology and You know, consequentialism, one's focused not on one's final ends, but on what I call the proximate ends, sort of the immediate results of one's activity. And obviously, there are a number of issues with this. One is a lot of those immediate results aren't in our control. We can't control other people. Life and people are infinitely complex. And so I think it's really difficult to base an ethical system on, on sort of guesswork. And so I think deontology is, is also sort of problematic and that there are situations where right and wrong cannot be discerned beforehand. You know, to give maybe an example that's up your alley, as you know, there, there's no command in the Bible that says, thou shalt not use Twitter. There's no a priori prohibition against it, obviously because the internet didn't exist thousands of years ago. So, you know, if we understand a, a Thomistic theory of virtue if we want to approach a question of Twitter, we have to begin asking if there are ways one can glorify God and grow in virtue by participating in Twitter. And if we can't think of any reasons, then we just shouldn't use it full stop. But if we can, then we've got to learn how to engage in Twitter well. So this is going to require the cultivation of virtues, uh, most prominently the virtue of temperance. have got to learn how much time to spend on it and when to get off so that it doesn't waste our time. And this will be easier for those who who've already cultivated temperance in the habits of say food or, or alcohol consumption. So, you know, what I love about Aquinas' approach is that it's it's grounded in Christ, but it it also gives us resources to really think through every single activity in our life to try to discern how how we can perform every single one of those activities to the glory of God. Yeah, and that's one of the things that as I study
0: ethics, it's it's almost there's some benefits and there's obviously a lot of uh, kind of attractiveness to an idea of a deontological system or there's some aspects of virtue ethics that I really like. And there's others that have gone before me who have started to think about there's something unique about the Christian ethic that doesn't fit neatly into these aspects and that's one of the reasons that I like this idea of virtue ethics there's a lot of good here and I just on aquinas specifically is kind of a total aside here i encourage listeners to go read aquinas in his own words uh, because reading him you'll you'll walk away going ha huh, i actually may agree with a lot more than i thought i would or I, a lot more than some people said i would when you actually go back and read him, he's as you said, he's incredibly biblical. He's very much tied to God. I mean, this isn't this isn't an add on to some kind of Aristotelian virtue system. He's actually recapturing really the core and the essence of uh, Aristotle's ethic, and he's recasting it as this is the Christian ethic. This has always been part of the Christian ethic, and so he's kind of reframing and helping to reorient a lot of where uh, Aristotle went wrong. But to that end, I wanted to, do, I wanted to ask you one other question about virtue ethics, if you don't mind. Specifically, what are maybe some of the kind of Greek ideas of virtue ethics that don't really comport with Christian ethics? Are there aspects of the kind of virtue ethic theory that don't really draw, kind of come on over into when we're talking about a Christian virtue ethic? Is there any distinguishing that we need to do there?
1: Yeah, well, I think the biggest one is is just in that ultimate goal. And so this is the the major issue with somebody like Aristotle, whose ultimate goal is, is friendship. And that obviously is problematic because, to be blunt, friends die. <laughs> um, so uh, we have this this ultimate goal that we're striving towards that is intrinsically unsteady. And I think that all sort of pagan accounts of virtue, they are rooted in some higher good, which we can... You know, we can all agree as a higher good, friendship is certainly a higher good than acquiring wealth or something like that. But none of them are are centered on an eternal good, a good that is everlasting. And that's why you need, you need a Christian understanding of ethics and you need to have a way of placing Christ at the top. And I I think what Aquinas does is he puts the focus on Christ. He's, as you see, if you read it, he, what I always tell people, he knows the Bible better than you. Um, And you'll you'll see that if you if you read through his work and then using virtue ethics as a tool to help understand the Christian life. And I think with with any other kind of theory of thought, these are all ways in which we're we're supposed to use them in a way to help us understand God better and help us understand the Christian life better. But they can never sort of take the place of it, too. So that's always the, the caveat with it as well.
0: Yeah, I know it's kind of one who's interested in virtue ethics. I'm not a virtue ethicist per se. Um, I've recently finished a book by Nicholas Wolterstorff, Justice, about rights and wrongs. And he has this like footnote that's kind of just randomly thrown in at the middle and he's critiquing kind of the Aristotelian or kind of early Greek ideas of virtue ethics that they're very individual focused. And he's saying this similar concept works about this idea of kind of the full life, but he kind of recaptures instead of eudaimonia as this kind of individualistic aspect, he shifts it and say it's actually more of an ironaic ethic. And ironaic comes from that idea of kind of the peace and shalom, the full life, but it's a full life that's lived in community, not only community with God but community with. The church, and so that's his term, and I, I really love that. And one day, hopefully, I'll write a little bit more about it, kind of teasing out. He says that's the best name in his mind for what really the Christian ethic is. So there's a strong virtue component. Obviously, there are clear commands in Scripture, uh, so there is some an element of deontology there. But he was kind of pulling these together and saying this is more of an ironaic ethics. So obviously I could talk about this stuff all day, but one of the things that you do in the book, if you kind of have talked a lot about the nature of Aquinas' moral theology, you've kind of set up this idea of virtue ethics. You also have throughout the book kind of, you can see the influence of Alistair McIntyre. You can see his influence, not only the project of virtue ethics, but also on missiology. And you talk about his concept of virtuous practices. So, what does that language mean, the idea of a virtuous practice, and how does that kind of connect to a lot of the challenges that we face with Christian missions
1: today? Well, for McIntyre, a virtuous practice is, he, he calls it a, a complex, coherent activity. He has this long definition. But what you can think about it, it's really easy just to think about it as examples of, of learning some sort of craft. So whether that's learning a sport, learning an instrument, a specific vocation that you're doing. All of these things are practices that we can perform well or poorly. And as we get better at them, they hold the potential to help us develop virtue in our character. Now, uh, the big part of um, McIntyre's conception of virtuous practices that I found incredibly helpful was he talks about this distinction between internal and external goods, so external goods are things like money, success, things that are not necessary to an activity itself while internal goods are those that are an essential part of a practice. So if we take example of practice like playing the violin, I could learn the violin to obtain external goods like money or fame, or you know, I say I want to perform in front of thousands of people. Those are all external goods that, I could also get by doing a whole host of other activities. I could make money different ways. I could have success, fame, doing a number of different things. That's not special. That's not something special about playing the violin. What is special about playing the violin is that there's this unique joy of mastering the violin, uh, of understanding the music, uh, of playing it, of hearing the sounds. And that internal joy, I can only get by playing the violin. I can't it from anything else. And I can experience it whether I'm playing the violin by myself or in front of a crowd. So playing a, a piece of music well gives me a kind of joy whether I'm playing it in front of zero people or thousands of people. And I found this distinction so helpful for understanding what I call the missional practices of proclamation and gathering. So for instance, you know, I could do evangelism or church planning in order to make money to have a career i could do it because i want success i want lots of converts or a big church but those are goods that are external they're not things that are in my control those are sometimes things i can i can get from other places but there's this internal unique joy that comes in proclaiming the gospel well to the best of one's abilities and that joy can be experienced whether it ends in mass conversions or or mass rejections. And I think this helps to explain the stories of Peter and Stephen in the book of Acts. So I love this. And if you look at their speeches early on in Acts, they're both very similar in that they're both very elegant. They're highly persuasive. Their persuasive appeals to, to try to get their audience to, to believe in the resurrected Christ. Peter's speech... Obviously, results in mass conversions and there's baptisms, and you've got the the birth of the Christian church. Stephen's speech gets him stoned to death. And yet, if we look in the Bible, Stephen gets a vision of Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. And what I'm suggesting there is Stephen is is receiving the, the greater joy. He's receiving that internal joy that in that act of witnessing to Christ, he sees Jesus delighting in him. And he's glorifying god and he receives that even though by the world's standards he's a failure and so stephen is sort of the the main sort of light motive throughout the book because he's somebody that you know he's very persuasive and that rubs people the wrong way today but by the worldly standards he's actually somewhat of a failure because he doesn't get sort of those external goods but he's sort of the model of proclamation in the bible And and my hope is that that's our main driving force too That the reason we share the gospel is not because we want mass conversions, we want success, although those things are great. It's simply that we want to draw closer to Jesus. So I really, I think
0: that's really helpful kind of
1: understanding this idea of virtuous practices,
0: especially that we see kind of within the work of Alistair MacIntyre that's obviously influenced your work here. In the book, you highlight two main virtuous practices for the idea of missions. You referenced them earlier, this idea of proclamation and gathering, this idea of proclaiming the gospel, but also planting churches. Can you unpack those a little bit and help us to understand why that should really be kind of the central aspect of Christian missions as opposed to a lot of the other activities that often get lumped into it?
1: Sure. Yeah, so proclamation and gathering are are essentially – akin to what we would call evangelism and church planting. And I think I I chose these two because these are the, the two practices that are essential to mission. All the other Christian practices that we do, so that are very, very important. Say if I'm serving the poor, that's immensely important, but that's something that I can do whether I'm a Christian or not. As soon as I open up my mouth to persuade somebody to become a Christian, I'm engaging in mission. As soon as I invite somebody into a church context and celebrate the sacraments, I'm engaging in an act of gathering and an act of mission. So I really chose those two because I think those are the two activities that if you removed either one of them, you wouldn't necessarily be engaging in mission. And again, that's that's always to say too, though, there are a host of other activities that are important that Christians, all Christians can and should do. But I, I think that in particularly too what I advocate in the book is, is that proclamation and gathering really have to go hand in hand. That proclamation really doesn't end until a new believer is incorporated into the life of the local church. So those engaged in in mission have to share the gospel and they have to help build churches. And I think that a lot of mission in North America does one or the other. I, I think Oftentimes, we think of parachurch ministries as really being excellent at proclaiming the gospel and developing that practice well, but maybe haven't quite learned how to integrate new believers into the life of the church. And I think that leads to a lot of Christians eventually leaving the faith because a faith never takes root in a local congregation. On the other hand, you you have a lot of people doing church planting. They are really focused on attracting Christians, And, and what they're trying to do is get people to leave one church and join their church. But again, this really is not mission. I, I'm an Anglican minister, and, and I, I think it's easy as an Anglican to, to start a church that's just focused on you know attracting evangelicals that are interested in the liturgy and the sacraments. And, and while I think it's really important for Christians to, to discover these things in the life of the church, if I focus all my energy on, on attracting those people, I'm not really doing mission. I'm not really building the kingdom of God. I, i'm I'm kind of just building my denomination. And so I really see those two acts as proclamation gathering, one, both being essential but also essential that those things are are done in tandem.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really important caveat. and i I appreciated the way you kind of set it up because for those uh, who listen to the podcast who are familiar with kind of the history of the even the Southern Baptist Convention, we had a a long history of missions uh, from eighteen forty five until today. But there was a season where we started to do what some would say calls like a social gospel, or most would talk about like the idea of like doing social work. And this is vital work. It's vital for communities. This is something that desperately needs to be done. But as you wisely point out, Christians and non-Christians can do that work whether it's digging the well or distributing food or caring for the poor. And all of those things are good and should be done. And I think Christians come in with a unique vision and a unique purpose and kind of thrust of why we do those things, obviously recognizing the dignity and value and worth of every human being and wanting them to be drawn towards God because God not only cares for their spiritual needs, but also their physical needs. But I think you wisely point out when we're talking about the nature of Christian mission and being very specific and distinguishing I like that idea of kind of focusing on proclamation and gathering and not letting those be separate from one another, but actually seeing them in tandem is kind of the fullness of Christian mission. So I I think that's a really helpful way to frame it up and I think can help to navigate a lot of what some of the challenges that you talked about earlier and even some of the challenges that I know of through church planting and through missionary efforts. I think that uh, those two concepts really help us to frame that up. As we start to end our podcast, I want to talk a little bit about kind of some practical aspects. So I know that often when we talk, we can talk, especially in academic circles and kind of live up in the clouds a little bit where we're defying terms and defining all this is necessary. It's crucial. But then starting to apply some of those things to our life and this idea of you talk in the book about how missions is part of a well-lived life. I mean, in some sense, that's the idea of virtue ethics, is this well-lived life, this idea of the fullness and the wholeness of what it means to be human, made in God's image. So what does it look like to apply some of these themes of proclamation and gathering those virtuous practices in terms of kind of our everyday life? Obviously, you're an Anglican minister, you planted a number of churches. What are some of the practical things that you see kind of flowing out of your work that can aid the church to think wisely about how we go about kind of the ethics of mission.
1: Well, um, I think particularly that I, idea of doing mission well develops virtue and virtues by their nature are not limited to one activity. So I, I think one of the things that I learned, and it's, it's really also something that I'm learning as I'm studying these things of, you know, proclaiming the gospel requires even some of the, what we might think of as mundane virtues, like temperance. So in order to, to proclaim the gospel well or gather people well, I need to look at how I'm spending my time, my consumption of media and my wasting time. And that really, you know, we talk oftentimes about are we living in a more secular culture are we living in a culture that's more hostile towards the gospel? Whereas, though, I think with ethics, it's wanting us to point inward and look inward and saying, well, maybe there are some challenges today that are unique. But maybe some of the problems are actually just related to myself. Um, maybe it's my own habits. Am I cultivating temperance and fortitude, not only in the way I go about mission, but in all aspects of my life, so that I'm somebody that, that has the time and the, the boldness to actually get out there and share my faith with others? The other thing I learned through writing this, and particularly looking at this idea of the life well lived, it's to see mission as one really good and important practice that finds its place within a whole host of other practices that we do as part of a life lived in devotion to Christ. So I'm a pastor, I'm a church planner, I'm a teacher, I'm a writer, but I'm also a husband and a father and a son. And each of those roles has its its own set of responsibilities. And part of living a life well-lived is knowing how to negotiate, particularly those periods of life where those different roles are in conflict with each other. And, and I think it's it's at those times that we need to accept a little bit of tragedy in life. and, and I love that concept of tragedy of uh, just meaning there are multiple good things that we can and should be doing, and we just we just don't have the time to do. we We bump up against our own limitations. So for instance, if you know if if my daughter gets severely ill, my role as a father is going to conflict with my vocational role as a pastor. I may have to spend more time in the hospital, more time caring for my daughter and focusing less time on my ministry. And I need to be okay with maybe maybe accepting that my ministry is going to shrink or, or things aren't going to turn out as well vocationally. And I think it's at those moments, though, where where God is calling us to a deeper life in him, because it's this call to, to realize that even though all of these other activities we do, even we look at issues related to mission and mission, however good they are, ultimately our ultimate goal in life is, is to pursue and delight in God. And it's, it's this calling for a, a kind of a deeper discipleship that says being willing to give up even some of these good ministry goals in order to, to honor God. And so I, I love what I've I've learned through writing this book is really just to look back on my own life too. And I think anyone can do this looking at all the different roles, all the different vocations, all the different responsibilities they have and, and what ethics can do is help us to try and discern how they all fit into this overall life lived for the glory of God. Yeah. I think that's really beautiful.
0: And I, I like kind of, Ending on that as well, this has been a really, really fascinating conversation for me and kind of opened up a new world of ethics that I didn't totally know existed. In some sense, you're kind of charting it out here. Uh, This is, as you said, and I I think I agree with you, I haven't seen another work like this. And so I really recommend folks to grab a copy of this, uh, Virtuous Persuasion A Theology of Christian Mission. We always ask the same question as we end the podcast, and this is some other resources. So obviously, we want folks to go out and grab a copy of your book. um, But what are some other resources that either were really formative for you along as you were writing this book or other ideas that we talked about today that you would say, hey, this would be a kind of a good next step for listeners if they want to dig a little bit deeper?
1: Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. Well, uh, on the missions front, any work by Roland Allen, who was an an Anglican missionary from about a century ago, he just wrote three, two and a half little books, are really, really fascinating. I I think he just is somebody that is just so prescient in his understanding of mission. Um, There's a book by Vincent Donovan named Christianity Rediscovered. He's a Catholic missionary. And I'm not sure if, if readers will agree with all of his conclusions about mission, but it's really, to me, one of the only texts where you see a missionary engaging in moral reflection and looking back upon their missionary life and, and trying to tease out what did I do well? What are the ways in which I, I maybe failed as a Christian in my interactions as a missionary? So I found that to be a fascinating work. Obviously, Alistair MacIntyre after virtue is really, if you want to understand virtue ethics, I think that's a great place to start. And then lastly, if if you want a a really challenging text, John Henry Newman's essay in aid of a grammar of ascent, it is a very, it's not written in an easy to read style, but it, it is talking about the mechanics of conversion. And really conversion in general, how do people go from believing one thing to believing another? And how are they persuaded? What what is sort of the process of that? I think it's the, the best book on understanding conversion ever written if you can just kind of stick with it and get through it. Yeah, I guess you just need to brew a pot of coffee and then dive into it a little bit. Exactly, exactly. Well, Michael, I
0: really appreciate, one, your work, um, and then two, this book. It's been a really fascinating conversation. I'm really glad you're able to join us today here on the Digital Public Square. Great. Thanks for having me. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you connect with Dr. Niebauer and learn more about his new volume, as well as the recommended resources we talked about in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the Weekly Tech email briefing that comes out each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think about the biggest issues in the public square today, along with the top tech news. You can sign up at jasonthacker.com slash tech The Digital Public Square is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Caden Christian and technical production by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week.